All right, so we are going to jump into week three, which is interpretation. But um, first, we're going to review last week. And I know Miss Penny wasn't here and Amanda wasn't here, right? But I think everyone else was. But you watched it. Okay. Okay, cool. So um, just a little bit of review from last week then. In observation, our primary goal is to answer the four questions as clearly and completely as possible, which are who, what, where, when, and not why. Right? So that's what we talked a lot about last week was in the text looking at who, who is in the text, who wrote it, to whom is it written, what is going on in the text, where is it taking place, and when. So that, those were our main goals to identify when we first went over the text last week. We were also looking at other things we can observe in the text, which could be the Godhead, is Jesus speaking or moving, or is the Holy Spirit or the Father. We also talked about connectors, such as contrasts, comparisons, and conditional statements. We talked about repeated words and symbolic languages, such as figures of speech, Old Testament quotes, prophecies, promises, etc. And lastly, we talked about the steps of the observation process. And so step one was to read the passage out loud. Step two was to survey the passage, which basically means that we were looking for the main ideas and the big picture understanding. And then step three, we talked about making observations in the text, so marking with highlighting and symbols and such things. So are there any questions about the things that we went over last week? Did anybody have questions about it? Okay. Okay, well, I just want to take a peek at our thing real quick. So we talked um, a whole bunch about um, the text and going through it together line by line. And so um, we took our time coloring, color coding, and that's what we have the colored pencils on the tables for today. We're not actually going to go into too much observation today, but I have them there if you want to make additional observations while we're going through it tonight. Um, so this week, we are talking about interpretation, and I think everybody has their notes, right? There's notes on the table. Okay, you're good. So interpretation is basically looking to determine what the passage meant when it was first written. So in your notes, that first blank is interpretation is, is determining what the book or passage meant when it was first written. Um, interpretation is not what it means to the 21st century reader. So as we interpret it, we're not yet asking, okay, what does this mean to me? In interpretation, we are specifically considering the perspective of the author of the text, the original reader, and the original hearer. And so to explain the difference between original reader and original hearer, um, the original reader is the people to whom the book was written. So when we have a book of the Bible that's a letter, it was originally written by a single person and usually written to either a person or a church or a, a people group in a town. And so there, there's an original reader, right? That letter was written on papyrus and it was sent by a messenger who showed up with it in hand and said, hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> and people read it. They read it or they heard it. And that, that would be the original reader. 
Now the original hearer is different because it would be the person or people who were present when those events took place. So for example, in the gospels, whenever Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees would be the original hearers because while the actual gospel was written much later after these words were spoken between them. There would be an original reader, but the Pharisees were right there in the moment when Jesus said, love the Lord your God, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. They were the first ones to hear it. So we have to consider at times, what did that sound like to that original person hearing it? And then what did it sound like to the person reading it? And so not always will there be an original here, like with letters, um, it's written. And so there's probably not an original hearer as much as there's going to be an original reader. Um, we primarily see original hearers in nar narratives. So that could be in the Old Testament or in the Gospels. Um, we also want to consider in interpretation, um, historical and cultural background and literary context. So, Sure. Yeah, so in your notes, interpretation is not what it means to the 21st century reader. Mm -hmm. And that next one comes in right now. Interpretation builds on the foundation of observations. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is correct. So thorough observations are what are going to give us better interpretations. So all of that work we did last week, we're going to go over how to interpret the things we observed last week. Yeah, to an extent. They definitely have to follow this kind of method, like the, the mindset approach of this wasn't written directly to us. This was written to someone specific, and we need to understand what was their life like and what were the problems they were facing, what was the language, the culture, the history, the politics, all of it, because that's going to influence why a person writes what they write to the person, right? Exactly, exactly. And we're going to focus so much on that next week. So this week, we're going to take a look at, so why did the author write this? You know, because we said, okay, we can't ask why yet, but tonight we get to ask why. And you get to ask why as much as you want. <laughs> we, we're going to look at the text and we're going to go, why did Paul write it? And why was he a prisoner? And why did he write it to Philemon? And why is Philemon his brother? And why is there a church in his house? And why is Aphia mentioned? And why is Archippus mentioned? We're literally going to ask why so much and we're going to talk about why it's all there. So that's the fun of interpretation. So yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna go over resources, um, but an example of a resource would be like this. This is Zondervan's Pictorial Bible Dictionary. Um, so dictionaries or encyclopedias are the best place to check. Um, they're gonna give a lot of information about the person, the place, the time period. You know, what did slavery look like in the first century of Palestine? What did what was the idea of women? What did they think of women at this time? How important was education? What was the man's role in the home versus in the church? Um, dictionaries or encyclopedias are going to help explain that. Another great place to find resources is actually, believe it or not, the History Channel. <laughs> so the History Channel, because they're historians that have really studied history, they're going to go through different time periods and cultures and languages to explain that. So I'm going to give you examples of where I got all of my information from whenever I go over the basic information. 
because I had, I don't know where it is right now. I had seven resources that I used that were all different dictionaries and encyclopedias. Um, and there's just so many out there that are going to have different scholars that give, um, historical background or different cultural experts, linguists, etc. So does that help? Okay, good. Um, so, in, like I said, interpretation builds on the on the foundation of observations. So, while in observation we focused on what does the text say, this week we're going to ask the question, what did this mean when it was written? Or why is this being said slash written? So, interpretation is where we're going to begin to discover what the text meant to the author, to the original reader, and to the original hearer. And our historical and cultural background is crucial. So here in your notes, remember, historical background is the bridge between observation and interpretation. So basically, to interpret is, is what we're going to be doing is recreating in our mind what happened in the first century. Um, and so what we're attempting to do is to stand in the author's shoes and recreate his experience, to think as he thought, to feel as he felt, and to decide as he decided. And this recreation requires our imagination. And Robert Trainer says, for the imagination may supply the magic carpet which transports us to biblical times and enables us to live and think and feel with the writers and characters of the scripture. Um, and so for us to rely on our imaginations, it's important for us to practice sanctifying our imagination. And so that's kind of a two-step thing that we do. In, in one way, we pray and we ask the Lord to sanctify our mind. We know from Romans 12, 1 and 2 that um, we are to renew our mind daily with God's word, that we are to be renewed inwardly um, and not to conform to the ways of the world. We know through Isaiah, the prophet, that um, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so we have to pray and ask the Lord to help us understand things as he means them to be understood. And then practically, how we would apply that, like Penny was asking, is we do some historical research. We have to intentionally look at, well, what was their world like back then? Did they have cars? How did they travel? Did they have stores? What was their marketplace like? Were men and women allowed to be in the same place at the same time? Did they have seg segregation? Was there racism? Did they have presidents? What was their government like? So we begin to um, transform and sanctify our imagination by getting some cultural and historical background to paint the backdrop as we watch these characters play out the real story and the real conversations that took place in scripture. So, like I said, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. We have to pray and ask God to show us what he meant when he wrote this. And then our part is to do a little bit of research. Thankfully, I did a lot of the research for you. <laughs> and so I'm going to share that research with you tonight, as well as the resources so you can also find them yourself. And we'll go from there and we'll begin to dream and imagine what this letter between Paul and Philemon really is about we're gonna get into like the juice and the meat it's like a nice steak we're gonna sink our teeth into <laughs> um just an illustration of this would be like if you've ever been in the supermarket and you see someone on the phone and they're having a real heated talk with someone and you're thinking oh boy I wonder what that person said <laughs> I wonder why they're reacting that way like what is going on who is it is it his wife is it is it his mother is it his doctor who is it that's on the other line and what are they saying that's making this person react this way that is basically what happens in the scriptures 
um, that is basically what we are attempting to do is we are like listening to a phone call between Paul and Philemon, but we don't know what Philemon said or did. We don't know what Onesimus said or did entirely, but we can hear what Paul's saying. And so it leads us to go, okay, I wonder what happened. What did Philemon say that made Paul say this? And what was Paul thinking? You know, what, who said what? Does that make sense? Can you picture that in your head? Yeah. So um, the second sheet that I gave you beyond your notes was a a two-page packet that says points to consider while doing interpretation. And I just wanted to share a little bit of that with you. Um, This is pretty handy. It gives us some important questions that we can use whenever we approach the text to interpret it. Um, The front page gives you just some, some important things to remember as you go into it. Um, And the first one I want to make note of is number one, and it says, does the author give his own interpretation? Does he interpret the use of his symbols? Does he state why he wrote the book? And if the author does that, we're going to take his word for it. We don't have to go, oh, no, 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 I don't think so. I think I'm going to figure out some other reason why he did it. No, like if he says, I'm writing to you to blah, 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 then we recognize, okay, that is why he's writing. Um, Another example of this in the text would be um, with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar when the king had a dream and Daniel interpreted the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. He, He gives the interpretation. And so we don't have to look at the text and go, I know that he interpreted it, but I just don't agree. <laughs> I think I can come up with a better answer. I think I'm going to pray about this, and I think I've got something else. No, we're going to take the text for itself. If he says, the Lord gave me the interpretation, and here it is, we're going to go, okay, that's the interpretation. Maybe it, Maybe we need to figure out a way to understand it in our modern day, and that's definitely something we can do then. But... If the observation and the interpretation is already present in the text, we run with it, okay? And then point number two, he talks about um, the context of quotes in scripture. And it's just like if nowadays we were to quote a song and we were to sing a lyric, we know what that song is and we're thinking about the whole song when we quote that lyric. We have the context in mind. It's like that in the Bible whenever the authors, when they write it or speak it, that they share an Old Testament um, quote. When they share it, they are thinking of the context of that passage. Like if they share a prophecy or if they share a warning, um, they're thinking of the entire portion of scripture that it comes from. So it's good for us if we see the quote of scripture to go back and consider the context. Um, And then as you go through this little packet, there's lots of beautiful observations, which we talked about last week, but right next to it, it gives examples, and it's giving you questions you can ask when you see these types of observations in the text. Yeah, that's pretty fun, huh? So like it says, who? So when we are observing who, right, we did green little circles around our who in the text of Philemon. And so we can look at all those green circles and we can look at these questions then and go, why does the author include him? Or what does the original reader think of this person? So this just helps us kind of guide our thinking when we, when we are going over our observations. 
because I, I know interpretation at times can feel a little bit overwhelming or a little scary because it's like, how am I supposed to know what it meant to them? I don't know. How am I going to figure that out? And that is very fair <laughs> because when I had to do this Bible school, I was like, I don't even know. How do I know that's important? I don't know that's important until someone tells me it's important. How am I going to know? And so we just, we're just doing the best we can, right? We, we want to come to it and we're hoping to identify, like I said at the start, those four main things, those basic things, which are our who, our what, our where, and our when. And after we do that, we can go from that point and then ask that question like, okay, why is that there? And we just practice challenging, why is it there? Maybe it's there because it's important or maybe it's not important at all. But as we ask that question, we'll come to discover whether or not it's important. Okay. So they just give a ton of examples here. There's 30 of them of interpretation, observations, and examples. Absolutely. Mm -mm. Original reader. O-R. Um, <coughs> in the examples... At times, the examples have questions that have a, a capitalized OR in it, and that capitalized OR under examples is going to be original reader. Um, if you see an OH, it's original hearer, or if you see an OA, it's original author. I don't think any of them are there, though. Okay, and I just want to go over this example here on the back because it's pretty handy, I think. Um, so on your back page, it gives interpretation example, example one. And so it's going to go over the repeated word brother in Philemon. So that's okay. I'm on the very back of it. It's labeled 50. It's 50 at the bottom, it says. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yep. So there it says example one. And so it gives repeated words. And so if we look in our text of Philemon, when we circled names or people or whose, you may have circled or underlined, you know, brother, prisoner, fellow soldier, beloved, fellow, blah, blah, blahs. And as we do that, we can start to see this repeating pattern show up that Paul often refers to people as brother. And so here it's like, okay, let's, let's, tap into this observation that Paul is using the word brother often. So they ask the question first, how many times is brother repeated? And when we look at the text, it has the answer here four times. It says it in verse one, in verse seven, in verse 16, and verse 20. So then the SO is the secondary observation question. How is this word used in context? So it gives the examples there. So you can see exactly how it's used in the text. So it's used. So verse one, um, it writes Timothy, our brother. Um, verse seven, Paul says to Philemon, um, the saints are refreshed through you, my brother. In verse 16, it says, Paul about Onesimus, more than a slave, a beloved brother. And then lastly, in verse 20, Paul says to Philemon, brother, let me have this benefit from you. Refresh my heart in Christ. So as we begin to interpret it, we can ask why. Why is he doing this? What does this mean? So we can see Paul is calling both Philemon and Onesimus brother. So if we follow up that question, well, what does it imply then? Like, why is that relevant? What does that mean? Um, 
And so for Paul to call Philemon and Onesimus both brother, he's putting them in the same category. And Philemon was a slave master. He was a taskmaster and Onesimus was his slave. And so for Paul to call a slave and his master, both brother and put them in the same category, it has some ramifications to it. Paul is saying that there is equality in Christ Jesus, that it doesn't matter that Onesimus has a past or was once a slave because now he's a brother, just as Philemon is a brother. So we can ask the question, what would that mean to Philemon, who is our original reader at the time this letter is written? So it says here, <clears throat> the way Paul loves Philemon is the way that he's calling Philemon to love Onesimus. So Philemon is being invited by Paul to extend forgiveness to his slave and to accept him as an equal, which, you know, today we may not have the same understanding of slavery as they did in first century Palestine, since we don't have regular slaves that cook for us and clean for us and tutor our children quite like they did. But we can understand that slaves and masters are two different types of people. They from the history that we understand, there is a difference in status and social class between them. There's like segregation, right? And so for Paul to put them both in the same category, to call them equals, has a big impact. And so that is, that is kind of the process of going from okay, I observe that this is mentioned multiple times in the text, to I wonder why, to let's see what's happening here and what are the ramifications of this mentioning. Does that kind of process make sense to you? Do you see how that slowly evolves? And as we dig deeper with questions, we begin to stumble upon something beautiful here. Yeah? Okay. Do you guys have any questions about that? Okay. Um... I'll make mention of some of the other notes that I have for you. Since we just talked about an example of repetition, there is a, a handout I gave you called Observation Continued, Reputation, or, sorry, <laughs> Repetition and Connectives. And this is an example where you can see um, multiple things that are repeated through the text of Philemon. So this is your Observation Continued, Repetition and, and Connectives. And so, it, this I don't think it gives any any insight, but it gives you the examples that um, there's this idea of bondage repeated uh, seven times. There's this idea of partnership or working together mentioned um, nine times. There's this idea of hospitality mentioned, restoration the heart as a figure of speech, grace, so on and so forth. So that's something that, you know, if that jumps out to you, you could start to dig into that and look at those, those individual verses and go, I wonder why that's there. Are there any implications that could be made because of this? Um, and you could just start to ask questions about that. Okay. Um, okay. Okay, so I think next I want to get into a little bit, uh, let me, before I get too far from my notes. Oh, okay, wait, I have a video for us. We are going to go over 
the video first, and then we're going to do some deep digging into history and culture together. So cue us up, audio man. So there you have it. The power of significant questions set an innocent man free and convicted the fish. <laughs> And so just to drive that point home, it is important for us to ask those open-ended questions. That's really what gets us to a conclusion in scripture. Okay, so I'm going to give us a little bit of background information on the text, and then we're going to, and then I'm going to share some more things, <laughs> and then you're going to do some, some practice interpreting. <clears throat> okay, so I'm just going to go over the who's, the when, and the where that we talked about, um, historically speaking. So when we consider who wrote the book, um, we can tell from the text that Paul is the author of this letter. So in verse one, he identifies Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So he begins to identify himself there. And then again, in verse nine, he says, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. And lastly, in verse 19, he says again, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. So internal evidence points to Paul being the author, and it is not widely disputed that he is the author. Um, it would probably take a lot to dispute that, <laughs> honestly. Um, he identifies himself in first person. Um, and we can also compare it to other literature he's written and see if his style remains the same. And it does. So our next question then is, to whom was it written? And from the internal evidence in the text, we see that it's written to Philemon. Um, he is mentioned by name um, one time, I think, just once. And um, that is not widely disputed either. Um, it is also written to Aphia and Archippus and the Church of Colossae, which is the Colossians Church. Um, something I want to point out for you guys, when we were doing our who observation and we went through and we were highlighting who the who is in the text, you know, we went through the, the beginning together. So we knew Paul and Jesus and Timothy and Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, church. <clears throat> and honestly, I never even thought to ask the question, who's Aphia and who's Archippus until this time when I was studying through it. And so when I went through it this time, I thought, I wonder who Aphia is and I wonder who Archippus is. And just through a little bit of, of digging, which I did on BibleGateway.com, um, which I use for their um, Bible dictionaries and their Bible encyclopedias, I just looked a little bit into them, and it turns out that it is widely accepted that Aphia is Philemon's wife, and that Archippus is Philemon's son. And as Archippus is called a fellow soldier, um, it is understood that Archippus is a minister of some sort alongside Paul and Philemon in this church. Um, and then with it also being written to the church, it carries an interesting dynamic and implication that Paul is not merely writing about an issue between himself and Philemon. By addressing it also to Philemon's wife, his child, and the church that meets in their house, he is saying that this is something he wants to bring before the eyes of many. So he's saying this letter is meant not only for Philemon, but for his whole family and for the church that meets 
in his home because the issue that he goes into with Onesimus and his plea for Onesimus's freedom it's it affects the whole house and because there's a church meeting in his house it affects the whole house you see what I mean there Okay, so that is to whom it is written. Um, we find additional internal evidence in Colossians 4, 9, and 17 about who these people are. I think one of the other worksheets I gave you is a, is a handout called Comparative. Do you have a, you have Comparative? Yeah, so that handout... <clears throat> um, I don't have it in front of me. But on that handout, you'll see that it lists different people. It lists um, Philemon and Onesimus. It lists um, Archippus, Aphia. It lists Damis and Luke and Mark and Epaphras. And you'll see there that the concept of a comparative study is to see where else that person shows up in Scripture. So that can be done um, on your Bible app by typing in the name of the person. You could do that in a dictionary and an encyclopedia, a specific Bible dictionary, I apologize, or a Bible encyclopedia, or if you went on um, biblegateway.com or studylight.org, um, different Bible sources like that, you could type in a person's name and it's gonna show you, first of all, like if you typed in Mark, there's a couple Marks in the Bible, there's Mark and there's John Mark, so probably both of those would come up and then you'd be able to identify, oh, okay, I'm looking for John Mark or oh, I'm looking for Mark. Um, but so that comparative study there, it shows us where else these people show up in scripture. And so Philemon doesn't show up anywhere else. Onesimus shows up in Colossians, I think it says 410 there. And then he shows up, um, sorry, he shows up there in Colossians. And then I don't think Aphia shows up, but Archippus does. Um, is that 47 or 417? And so on and so forth. So it goes through that. And so whenever we can begin to compare where else they show up, it helps us identify more about that person. It's kind of like looking at it from a different end of the spectrum. So this church that's referenced here is the Church of Colossae, or the Colossians Church. So that means that the letter written to Colossians actually also applies to Philemon, to his wife, Aphia, to Archippus, to their whole church that's living in their house. So those, the letters, and also if we look at the date, so if we look at when it was written, you can't find this in the text exactly. Some key clues to that, those descriptive words and those timing words about during my imprisonment, a prisoner, um, in my imprisonment, that helps us identify that Paul's in prison when he writes it. Um, and and through that comparative study, we can also recognize that he wrote Colossians at the same time he wrote this, and probably also wrote Ephesus at the same time. So we we start to see that timeline start to evolve, and, and we recognize that he's developed a relationship with these people in this time in a, in a special way. Do you have any questions so far? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. No. <laughs> You're like, that's a stretch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, so I checked in with 
So here's my my Zondervan's Pictorial Bible Dictionary, and I open it up to Philemon. Um, and when I open it up into Philemon, most dictionaries or encyclopedias follow a, a pattern where they address those four questions primarily. So here in the dictionary, the first thing that goes over is um, the timing of it and the authorship, um, the occasion of the letter, and then if there's anything else specific to be noted about it. Um, for example, this goes over the main idea of it. Um, but most Bible dictionaries or encyclopedias will make sure they cover all those areas. Um, if something shows up as widely disputed, then I'll check more than one resource because I'm like, okay, so this person says this and another person says another thing. I think you should see, I think I gave you a handout called Critical Method Helps. And the Critical Method Helps handout gives you an example of how they, two different um, arguments about where it was written that identifies the time period. Did I give you that? Okay, I'm sorry. Well, I can give it for you if you'd like. This is called the Critical Method and the Critical Method is what they employ to figure out where it was written. So if you guys want this, I can print it out for you. But some scholars will say, oh, Paul wrote this when he was in jail at Ephesus. And then other scholars will say, well, Paul was also in jail while he was in Rome. So I think he wrote it from Rome. And the reason that that becomes important to determine is because he was in jail at Ephesus in a different year than he was in jail at Rome. Right. I mean, obviously he wasn't in jail two different places at the same time but <laughs> but the time period has a big effect because if it was written from Ephesus it would have been written in 54 AD whereas if it was written in Rome it was written in 62 AD and there's tons of scriptures listed here that identify okay Paul was in prison at Ephesus at this time and Paul was in prison in Rome at this time and so uh, scholars have to kind of go through that process of, okay, are there hi historical um, articles or are there other books outside of the Bible that would help us identify Paul in history in a specific location at a specific time? Um, and so as they question that and research that, they come to um, a generally accepted answer some books of the Bible don't have a generally accepted answer. Some books, people just genuinely don't know when it was written. They go, your guess is as good as mine, <laughs> you know, because maybe there aren't some supporting resources available to identify time period or location. Um, there's even some books we don't even know the author of, but yeah. That's right. So that's pretty significant. It is. We're getting into it. Yeah, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. It is. So one of the things that is, I will, I'll, I'll go there right now, actually. So one of the things that's debated about this letter is whether or not it has a reason to be in the Bible, because some scholars believe it was such a personal note between friends that they think, well, it shouldn't really be included. Why is this here? It's just between Paul and his friend Philemon. Um, and they consider it a letter of recommendation on behalf of Onesimus, who is a slave. Others will look at it and say, actually, there is a great purpose for it. It's Paul is setting a precedence for how to treat slaves and how to actually begin to abolish slavery in the Bible. So, and one, well, one of the ways he does that is by bringing them on the same plane because 
to have people equal to each other begins to abolish the institution of a slavery, right? Um, okay, let me think. So we did who wrote it, to whom it was written, when it was written, and from where it was written. So based on internal and external evidence, I find myself in agreement with scholars who believe it was written while Paul was in prison in Rome. So that would put it in the time period of 60 to 60 AD. And historically at this time, Nero was the Roman Empire. And if you've ever heard anything about Nero, Nero was a very bad guy. He was a very ungodly ruler. He was vicious and cruel, and he persecuted Christians in a just extreme way. N-E-R-O, Nero. Mm-hmm. Good question. And so, I mean, he was so bad that some people think that when um, John wrote the book of Revelations and talked about the beast, they thought Nero was the beast. They thought he was the Antichrist. He was that bad. And so one of the things Nero did, just for example, to, to put him on the scale, he would take Christians hostage. He would dip them in tar and wax. He'd put them in his garden and he'd light them on fire and they would be his nightlights as he walked about the garden at night. Listening to them scream, he thought it was peaceful. That was how he would spend his evenings. He also was the one who began to instigate the gladiator games. And the gladiator games are, are not you know, what they became at first. At first, they were Christians he put in the ring to fight each other to the death. And at times, he'd release vicious wild animals on the Christians in the gladiator games. And he called it a circus. That was where our modern word circus came from. Um, and so that was his form of entertainment, was killing Christians and doing so in vivid ways. So he was an emperor. I believe it. I could believe it. Might also have some demons in there. <laughs> um, so that's the time period that Paul's living in. Paul is alive while this guy is his emperor. Talk, you think we have a bad situation with our government, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, that Nero is not our ruler. <laughs> that was bad. So... That gives you an idea a little bit about what's going on at that time. Um, okay, so this letter is technically an epistle, a New Testament epistle. Um, like I said, it's considered to be either a personal letter of recommendation or it is a... Um, or it carries more. So one of, the, one of the internal evidences that points to it carrying more than simply a letter of recommendation is where he says... I, Paul, an old man. Now, in the original language, old man is actually in Greek, prostubius. And the word prostubius means ambassador or wise or sage. And so the word we have now as old man is, is a bad translation. Um, and it, it picks out in our head more a picture of Paul just being a, a sweet old Jewish man, just out there kvetching. <laughs> but what word he really used there was like, I'm your boss. I'm an ambassador of Christ. I am an apostle. I'm writing to you knowing my apostolic authority. So he's not just writing out of, out of a place of friendship. He's writing out of a place of authority. Okay. Um, so I'm going to jump into just some more in-depth interpretation from the text. Um, do you have any questions so far though? 
So that kind of gives you just an overall idea of who and when and where and to whom it was written and in the, the literary context understanding what type of letter this is excuse me mm-hmm yep written from Rome mm-hmm 60 AD that's right so actually I'm just a little fun history thing that that I found fascinating when I was studying this so at, in the final greetings it addresses Epaphras my fellow prisoner sends his greetings to you and I was curious, okay, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, another one? Who's he? And so as I started to research him, I realized that Epaphras is actually the founder of this church. He's the church planter of Colossae. So what had happened was whenever Paul was on his third missionary journey, which we can see from Acts, oh, I don't remember what chapter of Acts, maybe 19 and 20. Paul's third missionary journey. Apollo Barnabas? Mm -mm. No. no, the last one. I think it's, I think it's 19 and 20. Yeah. Um, but so Paul goes to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And while he's in Ephesus, he leads Epaphras to salvation as well as Philemon. And while they're there in this little town of Ephesus getting saved, Paul says, you know, some, some sort of great sermon, I'm sure, that inspires them to then go out and change the world. And so Epaphras and Philemon head back to their, their city, which is Colossae. And Epaphras plants this church. And Philemon, who is a wealthy man, says, hey, you know what? I got a big house. Why don't you put your church in my house? Like, I'll open up my doors. Use my home. And so Philemon now has this church in his house. And when Philemon adds Epaphras to this letter, it's almost like when you send a send an email to someone and you CC the boss on it, it's like not not only is he sending this message, he's saying Epaphras has my back. So you better listen because it's like the pastor, <laughs> the lead pastor is in agreement with me. He says, hey, hi, hello. I hope you obey. <laughs> so I just found that really fascinating. But that's just a, a, tit, a, a, little, a little tidbit of that history of, of from Paul to now into Philemon and his house. OK, so we're going to get into the meat of this. I know I've I've really preface this, but now we're going to get into the main point of this letter. And the main point of this letter is verses eight through 22. So digging into what's really happening here. So Philemon is this wealthy, this wealthy businessman, this wealthy man who has many slaves. He's got the church in his house. He's going about enjoying life as he does, working hard, loving his family, loving the Lord. And his slave, Onesimus, who is not saved, it's not entirely sure what kind of dispute they have. Some sort of dispute occurs and Onesimus deserts Philemon. And it's likely that Onesimus probably robbed his master in the process. Um, just just from what is common from this time period, that when he would leave, maybe out of vengeance, would take things with him or need something for the road and take it to sell on the way. Something to that effect. But it's not known for sure what he did. We just know Onesimus runs away. And Onesimus finds his way to Rome um, and either continues to steal on the way to um, have food or to have finances for his journey, something that probably lands him in jail because 
Paul's in jail and somehow Onesimus becomes his son. Here in the text, Paul says, I became his father in my imprisonment. So somehow Onesimus and Paul meet. It could be likely that Onesimus does something that lands him in jail. So Paul and Onesimus are now in jail together. And Paul, being this great father of the faith he is, is not going to stop blabbing about Jesus. So he's like, come here, boy. <laughs> you know, Paul's up there in age at this point. So he's like the little little Jewish grandpa. You can picture him older. So he's there and he's talking to Onesimus, telling him about Jesus, leading him to the faith. And I want to point out this phrase he uses. He calls him my child. He refers to himself as his father. And the reason that's significant, you know, nowadays in our church, we we know Mark and Angel use phrases like we're spiritual moms and dads. And, you know, we have that idea in our head that when we disciple someone, we build this, this familial connection with them, right? It's like that in Jewish times, but even more significant. The implications are huger because Paul... Now, if you think back of who Paul is, Paul used to be a Pharisee, right? Paul used to be a bad guy. He used to persecute Christians, but Paul was raised under Gamaliel. Gamaliel. I can't remember how to pronounce his name, sorry. But he was a top Jewish scholar. He was a top Jewish rabbi back in the day. And Paul was like his top student. He was learning from this man, which meant that Paul was studying to be the best Pharisee ever. He was going to rabbinical school. He was taking rabbinical trainings. So he was very well acquainted with the Torah and the Talmud, which are two Jewish texts that, you know, we don't reference, we don't use today in modern Christianity. But back then they used them and they were the holy book and the practical law book. And so in the practical law book of the Talmud, Paul is taught from it. Um, it, it, I'm trying to think how to repeat the law properly. It says, if one, if one teaches the law to the son of another, it is as if he has begotten him himself. And so Paul understands from his rabbinical training that whoever he shares the law with will become like his son. So he's taught that from his rabbinical training. So because he shares the gospel with Onesimus, and and Onesimus now comes under his wing in more than just a, okay, thanks for telling me about Jesus, I'm going to head out, peace, bro. (laughs) It's it's much more than that. And Paul is now taking a significant responsibility for his life because of the salvation Onesimus has incurred, okay? Okay. So Paul and Onesimus are in jail. He shares the gospel. Onesimus becomes like his son to him. And Paul is now discipling him in Christ, explaining to him, I'm sure, the things that we hear Paul explain to all the other churches in the epistles, to forgive, to have grace, to love the Lord, to worship Jesus. You know, Paul is doing his due diligence to whom he now calls his son. Okay, and so moving forward with that, Paul takes on even more responsibility of this boy, and it can be seen in 17 through 19, through 20, really. So characteristic of a first century letter of recommendation, when a person would recommend another person in the first century, they were basically putting the reputation on the line. They were going to bat life and death for the person. It's not as intense for us nowadays, right? You ask your teacher for a letter of recommendation and you don't even know her first name. <laughs> but, but back then, it was like blood. It was a big deal. 
So when he says in verse 17, receive him as you receive me, this is characteristic of first century letter letter of recommendation. And now Paul considers him like his son. So he considers this deep connection with him that he is going to bat for him. You wouldn't typically do that for anyone. Then in verse 18, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, in that day, in the first century, there was a law regarding slaves and runaway slaves and those who housed them. A runaway slave was considered a fugitive. And for someone who housed a fugitive or a runaway slave, it was then their duty and responsibility to repay the taskmaster for what was lost. So because in the old times, in the first century, slaves were virtually workers. They did all kinds of work. And just a little, I'm going to try not to get lost in this rabbit trail, but just a little bit of insight on first century slavery. It was wildly different than what our version of slavery is that we know from Africa or the movies or from sex slavery. Very, very different. So in the first century, Rome's way of advancing their culture and their Romanness <laughs> in order to advance, they considered the fastest and easiest way to um, spread out and take over territory was literally to enslave other cities. They would just conquer them and make them their slaves. So during the Roman Empire, during the height of their empire, more than two-thirds of the empire were actually slaves. Only one-third of the Roman Empire was ever actually real Romans. The rest were slaves. So that meant that they were, they were slaves of all kinds of sorts, all kinds of degrees. Um, and for them, being a slave wasn't actually as bad as we think it is. Um, some, and for some people, in some cases, it was very bad. It's exactly what we imagine. But there were slaves to the city. So the city owned people such as doctors and lawyers and governing officials and police. It's actually where we get our word today for public servants. Because back then... They were literal servants to the public, but they got paid well. They had their own homes. They had their own families, their own lives. They literally just answered to Rome as their taskmaster. So they were a public servant, you know, and then next down would be um, maids and tutors and cooks, people that worked in a home and had employment. They may even have housing on, on that location or granted housing, um, or they may have their own life and their own family, but they simply worked as a maid or tutor or cook. And then of course we have the bottom rung of slavery, which would be, they do the worst of the worst. They do icky things and they get beat and they live there and it's not great. Um, overall though, there was this law that, um, a slave was more than a, or sorry, they, they were less than a person. They were property. Um, that stayed the same through most of the classes, except for the public servants. The public servants, um, I don't know, I didn't get to research too much, but they definitely had higher status. They were definitely more beloved because they provided a service that was um, more irreplaceable. But other servants, household servants and um, lower rung in the class of slavery servants were considered property and they could be executed if they did anything wrong, if they failed to show, if they, um, if their master died, they would just get killed. Like the, the property would be sold and the slaves would be killed. It just was dealing with the estate. Um, so that, that's just a little bit of historical context on slavery. 
And I'm going to try to go back to what I was about to say. Okay, so in verse 18, I think it's where we left off, charge that to my account. So Paul is remembering this law that if anyone houses a runaway slave as a fugitive, they are now responsible to pay for the wages that that slave has has missed or is indebted to now. That's where I was going. So Onesimus must have been the type of slave that was paid for the work he did or did a significant amount of work that since he was missing, didn't get done. So now it's up to Paul who housed this guy and kept him from, quote unquote, kept him from his master in prison. Now it's on Paul to pay for what was missed by Onesimus. So because of Paul's relationship with him, because of the Talmud and the level of responsibility and duty he is feeling as ambassador, as apostle, as spiritual father to him, and now lawfully as the one who housed this runaway slave, he is feeling a tremendous amount of responsibility to this young man on various levels. So when he says, charge it to my account, that's what he's referring to. It's not just like a feel-good statement of like, don't be mad at him, be mad at me. He's being literal. He's like, I understand that I kept your slave from you and he owes you a great deal. He can't pay it because he's been in jail with me, but I'll pay it. I'll take it. I will take it on for you. And then in verse 19, when Paul goes on, he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Um, that's kind of like his John Hancock, right? He's like agreeing in a contractual way. I will repay it. Then, funnily enough, he says, to say nothing of your own owing me, even your own self. It's kind of like when someone owes you something and you go, remember that time, though, that, like, I helped you out? Like, do you think you could, like, repay me that favor? And you, you know you've got something good that you're like, I'm going to call in my favor. <laughs> That's what Paul's doing. Paul's like, hey, remember when you were a sinner and a slave to darkness and death itself? Oh, wow. Remember when I helped lead you to salvation? Oh, remember when you were destined to die and I stopped that train? Wow. Golly, what a nice guy I was. <laughs> This is verse 19. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so there's so many moments where Paul does that. And I was, tell I was telling my school leader this the other day, and she was like, I don't personally know any Jewish people, not personally. I wish I did, but she knows Jewish people. And so she's like, you know, those, those Jewish grandmas and those Jewish grandpas, how they just sit around, they just kvetch all day. She's like, Paul's kvetching. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what Paul's doing. She's like, yes, Paul's just a Jewish grandpa in jail kvetching to anyone who will listen. And I was like, That's so cute. But so what Jordan pointed out is that it's like he butters him up a little bit and then he's like, by the by. <laughs> and that that is kind of what's happening. I mean, ultimately, Paul is saying, This is your choice. You get to do what you get to do, but remember the cost that was paid for you. Your soul was once at risk and it got saved. Your slave's life is now at risk because Onesimus 
is actually the letter carrier taking this letter back to Philemon. Onesimus himself is on a death march. He doesn't know if Philemon is going to kill him or not because law says if your slave runs away, he is liable to be killed. That could be the punishment. It could be a brutal beating. It could be as severe as death. He could kill his family. He could just decide to do away with them and get a new set of slaves. Anything could happen. And Onesimus knows this as Paul gives him this letter of recommendation that says, hey, please don't kill him. I love him. And, and Onesimus is marching back. I don't know how far Rome is from Colossae. There you go. That would take a couple days, I bet. <laughs> Right? I was going to say, it's probably on the back there, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, is that it? Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, that would be great. Yes. Did I give you the handout, the historical method? That's, no, you're okay. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Oh, there it is. I was looking for that. Wow. Thank you for sharing. That sounds like a great resource. Neato. Sweet. Okay. So, okay. Let me think. Yeah, so Paul does do that quite a few times where he reminds him. I'm picturing the the little Jewish grandpa in jail kvetching. Yeah, he, (laughs) he, oh, 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 here's one other thing I want to point out to us. So this is just fun. Um, Onesimus, the name Onesimus actually has a meaning. So in the, in the old times, first century, yeah, (laughs) they would name their children something specific based on the circumstance of their birth, who they wanted them to become, what they hoped for them, etc. Does anyone but Jordan know what Onesimus' name means? (laughs) I bet she will. (laughs) Anyone want to take a guess? What, what do you think Onesimus means? If you hear the name Onesimus, you think, ah, I know what that means. <laughs> it rhymes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those are good connections. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Onesimus, his name actually means useful useful how 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 useful is that to have a slave a slave named useful come here useful <laughs> i could i could make use of you <laughs> he may have i don't know if they would rename them but there there's a chance that he could be born in a line of slaves and they used to just name them numbers honestly and so there is a chance that like if his mom was a slave and his mom also had a, had a slave name or had a, I don't know, maybe her name was not useful. I don't know. And she was like, my child will not be, <laughs> my child will be useful. I don't know. 
but that that's a great question someone should do a deep dive search on Onesimus's name and why and how who named Onesimus that's a good question but so Onesimus Onesimus's name means useful and there are several plays on his name in the text so this can be found for example using uh, blue letter bible or studylight.org those are both resources or if you want to do old school and you want to use the strong's concordance you could do that but those are three great resources that you could sorry um, that's okay uh, blue letter bible it's a website and a bible app um, you could do it's called studylight.org um, or if you want a book, you could do Strong's Concordance. And that's what you would use to find the original language, like to read the text in its original language to figure out what those words mean. So that's where you would look at Onesimus' name in English, and you would find a number that corresponds to the Hebrew or the Greek for his name. It's Greek, I'm sorry. The Greek for his name. And then you, you could do that number search in Strong's Concordance or on the website, and it will tell you, okay, this number equals this, and stop it. Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't distract me. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Give me the GPS coordinates. <laughs> I wish I knew that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so anyway, so his name means useful. And there's such a cool play on words happening here in verse 11. So verse 11 says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So in the original text, it literally says, formerly he was not Onesimus, but now he is Onesimus. Oh, how neat is that? I know. And then, but wait, there's more. <laughs> so then in verse 20, if you flip over on verse 20, it says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And that word benefit is actually useful, use, which is Onesimus. So he says to him here in verse 20, I want Onesimus from you in the Lord. And that is not only a play on the word of his name, but it is a, it is a last request from Paul to say, give me Onesimus. Because if you continue through his, his plea earlier on where he talks about, I, I would like it if you left him with me to serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment, but I don't want to do anything without your consent. I don't want your goodness to be by compulsion. I want it to be of your own accord. But Paul is again saying, ultimately, I want Onesimus from you. And that's how he echoes it there, cloaked in, I want some benefit from you. You you owe me, so how about you give me your slave? Because he saved him. Because Paul led Philemon to salvation while he was at Ephesus. Yep. Okay, um, and then the last thing that Paul does in 21 and 22, this is another one of those little like hooks in there. He says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. And see it like so I started with okay room a guest room that's a observation about a location that we all made we put a little blue triangle over it um, and 
looking at that going, okay, so there's only like two or three locations in here. That's strange. What, what is the, what is the implication of this location? And Paul is using this to add weight and a further emphasis to when I get out of jail, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to come see whether or not you killed him or not. So I recommend because he says, I'm confident of your obedience in 21. I'm, con- I'm so confident I'm going to come to your house and I will see Onesimus alive. So that's like his furthermore added punch. You be good to him. He is a brother in the faith now. He's not just a slave. He is more than a slave. He is a beloved brother to me. But imagine how much more to you, he says in verse 16. Um, when I was doing the, the online class yesterday, someone had asked if Mark and Luke mentioned in verse 24 were the disciples and they are. So I just thought I'd let you know that. Um, when we talk about interesting words hidden in the original language, the phrase heart is used two or three times. I think in this passage talks about refreshing the hearts of the saints, refresh my heart in, in the Lord. Um, and that phrase is an interesting figure of speech because Paul doesn't really have, you know, a heart issue. Um, you know, he's asking for something figurative there and figuratively speaking, you know, modern day, we talk about trust your heart, believe in your heart, believe with your whole heart. Um, you know, and, and we use the heart as an intangible location where belief or emotion or passion takes place, right? Fun fact, in the first century, they did not believe the heart as the intangible place of emotion or feeling or belief. They believed it was the bowels, <laughs> the gut. Yeah. So much like we would say a gut instinct, they believed that you would love someone with your whole gut. right from the intestine is right yeah so when you look at like the king james there's times where it says intestines or bowels and they're referring to that that intangible place that would be your gut instinct or your heart and it's just it's funny because when i did the word search the word study on that i was like refresh my bowels in christ jesus oh yes lord I feel a burning in my bowels. <laughs> Things you never thought you'd say at Bible study. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. It does say that my bowel yearns for you in Christ Jesus. Yeah, it does. It does say that. So, in conclusion, <laughs> this letter ultimately is is the story of Paul who encountered a runaway slave led him to faith in Christ Jesus and said buddy you got to face the facts you did something wrong and you got to go back to your master and you got to own up to it you have to be willing to pay the consequences whatever they are even if it means you're going to die he says I'm going to plead your case on your behalf on on Christ Jesus and the salvation he did for you And we're going to hope and believe that your master will have forgiveness on you. He says, you know, actually, I know the guy. I'm friends with him. Let me put my reputation and my life on the line for you and see if I can get my friend to forgive you. And he sends him and he hopes and he hopes and he hopes that Philemon will keep him safe and not kill him. Which, spoiler alert, 
He doesn't kill him. And we know that because he is found in the letter to Colossians. Um, and it, you have that comparative thing next to Onesimus's name, whatever verse it is, four, nine. Yeah. It, it, does it say something about our, our most faithful brother or something? Will you read it? There we go. Yep. And so Onesimus actually comes up in the faith into a place of leadership in the church over time because of this great forgiveness that took place between Philemon and Onesimus. And so this letter is here for us in in the Bible to represent forgiveness. And there's a, let me see, I have a quote about it. Let me find it. Hmm. One second. Ah, yes. So the task theology of this book is forgiveness. Forgiveness is often tough, C.S. Lewis says. Everyone says that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until he has something to forgive. And in the Sourceview Bible app, this is what it says about the book of Philemon. He says, someone has to swallow the pain of having been hurt. Philemon is a letter that showcases the cost of asking for and of granting forgiveness. While this is the briefest of all Paul's writings, it is one of the most magnificent illustrations of grace and forgiveness in the Bible. Paul's deep concern for reconciliation calls us to apply these same principles of love and compassion to our own relationships. As we also stand in need of God's grace and forgiveness, it is a welcome declaration of the cleansing that is available to us all through Jesus, who is our mediator, who has come to set us free with his offer of forgiveness. Did you know that all that was jam-packed in this little, little letter? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Mind boggling. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's in the Facebook group beyond the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so in your notes, there are questions that you can do on your own if you would like to further do interpretive work on this. I tried to answer most of the questions that can be found there that are tangible questions about who wrote it and what was their relationship like. But these questions will help you kind of get into the skin of the author and of the original reader and original hearer and really feel your way through it. So. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in it. <laughs> it's a long book. <laughs> but yeah, do y'all have any questions about that? <laughs> no. Well, thankfully, I'll show you my. So, this is all of my research from 16 books of the Bible. So I, I can do 15 more with you. <laughs> yeah, but okay, how about I'll just pray for us and we'll close and then we can all do our thing and people can go if they need to. Jesus, wow, thank you so much um, that you speak to us and you give us life through your text. God, thank you that in the, in the midst of a debacle between a slave and his master is this glor glorious thing <laughs> that points to forgiveness and it points to you and how good you are to us. And God, it's crazy to think that this is hidden in there and, and to think how much more is hidden throughout the Bible for us to find if only we look. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that uncovers and reveals truth to us. Um, 
that you're the one that helps us find these things and, and you help make it impacting to us. So Father, I pray that as we go from this place tonight that you would protect us and keep us safe and that you would continue to speak to us and minister to our spirits, reminding us of the great forgiveness that you've offered us and that we we stand um, clean before you. We stand forgiven before you. We stand as your brother, as your sister, as your beloved in the Lord. And, and we thank you so much for that, Jesus. Um, and so we love you and we will talk to you later, Jesus. Have a good night. Amen. <laughs>